Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey everybody, this is Shane Claiborne, and I'm so glad you could join me. I have been doing a little series on this new book I wrote called Rethinking Life rethinking life and the subtitle is embracing the sacredness of every person and right now in our world there is so much violence there's a rise in anti-semitism islamophobia there's so much violence almost every day in our country we're seeing stories of uh, shootings and um, we've we've been uh, we we just had a day where we had two executions in one day here in the United States. Uh, we see the, the what's happening in Israel and, um, and the 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 lives lost in Gaza. And whew, I want to reflect on this last section of the book, which is um, about kind of reclaiming this value that every person is made in the image of God, that every life is sacred, every every person's an image bearer of God. And uh, when we lose that, boy, things go, uh, we, we can begin to see so much violence. Um, but, you know, I'm also recording this in the season uh, right before Christmas that we, um, many folks celebrate as Advent and uh, the the Advent, not every Christian, not every tradition of Christianity remembers Advent, but it's this time where leading up to Christmas uh, that we remember the coming of Jesus. That's actually what Advent means, the coming. And it's a time of, you know, expectation and we are walking with Mary as she's pregnant with the sweet Lord Jesus in her womb and getting ready to give birth. And Christians have been celebrating this, by the way, Advent for hundreds and hundreds of years since like the fourth and fifth centuries. Um, And it is, you know, obviously there's a sense that Jesus already came, of course, but there's this time every year where we remember that the work of Jesus is still being done and we get to participate in that it's a, as many theologians have said it's the already not yet kingdom so we wait in expectation of the full coming of god's dream on earth the return of christ all that god will yet do but the waiting you know that we're talking about is not a passive waiting it's it's an active waiting um just like any expectant mother by the way check this out katie and i are pregnant. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but we are expecting a baby boy on January 4th. How about that? So this season of waiting 
uh, and uh, expecting the coming of, you know, Mary's pregnancy as we're reading through these weeks of Advent. Um, it's got new meaning for us, new depth. Um, but, you know, tonight I'm painting the room where our little baby boy will will live. Um, and he's supposed to come January 4th, so it might, he could even come dur- during Christmas, you know. And so my wife, you know, um, as we're expecting the baby, we're painting the room, we're getting stuff that we need, you know, we're exercising, eating healthy, we're praying, we're working, we're getting ready, right? So it, I think it's a good metaphor because as we um, think of God's coming kingdom on earth, it's not that we just sit around, but we participate. We, uh, you know, as we hope for the transformation of the world, it it changes the way we live. So we we live with that kind of, active expectation and you know birth is also um a time where you know it's joyful but it's also like it's work you know it's called labor for a reason giving birth involves pain and blood and tears and but it's about joy and release and it's a reminder that like um this this thing is um it, it it is about working with God, not just waiting for God. And the world is pregnant with hope that things can be different. You know, we, we think of what's happening in, in Gaza. And um, I mean, it absolutely breaks my heart that we've lost over 12. I mean, right when I'm recording this, it's over 12,000 lives that have been lost. Um, half of those are children, babies. <laughs> And so this world is not what God wants it to be. Um, but I, I think of my friend Munther Isaac, a great Palestinian theologian. Uh, he was asked, where is God in all of this? And Munther said, God is under the rubble. God is under the rubble of the bombing of Gaza. I, 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 my understanding is now 70% of the buildings that have been destroyed home. So even after this war, very soon, this, this violence, the annihilation of life in Gaza, after it stops, hopefully very soon, the hostages are released and the violence stops. Uh, they're still rebuilding. There's still so many lives that have been lost. And so God is with those who are suffering. On October 7th, God was with the, the, those 1,200 uh, people that whose lives were were taken from them, the families of the hostages, God is weeping with them, but God is also underneath the rubble. God is with the suffering families of Gaza, the grieving mothers, those who uh, family members are still missing because of this massive, massive violence. So we wait, we pray, we cry, we know that another world is coming. That's what we remember this Advent. I think of that great verse in uh, Romans where it says, the entire creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. That's amazing, right? Like the, the world is groaning as in the pains of childbirth for God's kingdom to come. And it says that we groan with it. We are aching. We're, we're, we're praying, God, your kingdom come. And we're also waking up every day saying, how can I participate in the coming of God's kingdom? So I also want to, you know, being the season of Christmas, I feel like I want to tell you a story, one of my favorite Christmas stories. This is uh, a pastor who, um, a true story actually, was getting ready for the Christmas service. And uh, he 
you know, they had decorated the entire sanctuary and um, all the wreaths and Christmas trees and the lights and candles and the green and red. And yet, right before the Christmas service, this pastor was praying on the altar that God would would meet them, you know, during the Christmas service the next day. And um, and he said, and then something weird happened. He said he felt clear as day. God say, you've forgotten the story. Take down the decorations, right? <laughs> this guy's like, I'm not one to argue with God, but that was weird. I was like, are you sure about this, God? I'm going to have some angry elders and some <laughs> mad trustees around here that decorated this church. But he took down all the decorations, worked all night, you know, into the morning. And, and he said, and then it got weirder. I felt like God told me to go out to my my farm. He had a little family farm. And he said, and God told me to get some of the manure and the hay and redecorate the altar so that we could remember the story, so that it would be a little bit closer to that original Christmas when Jesus was born. So he did it. He, he poured hay and manure all over the altar and down the aisles and all the decorations were down and everybody came the next morning for the, you know, Christmas cantata, the you know big Christmas service, the singing, the hymns, you know, the Christmas carols. And they were like, where are the decorations? They sat down, they started smelling the poop, the manure, looking at their neighbors like, what in the world? Has pastor lost his mind? And, uh, and then he said, but then God met us. He says, one of the most powerful services we've ever had. He said, God reminded all of us that this story is about Jesus leaving all the comfort of heaven and being born into the poop into the crap, into the manure, into the stench and the brokenness of our world. Uh, Jesus leaving heaven to join the struggle here on earth. I don't know if you'll do that this Christmas. You're probably getting a lot of trouble. You know, maybe, uh, but I don't know if you'll put manure on the altar, but but it, it is worth thinking, have we forgotten the story? Uh, you know, as we so often celebrate this Christmas season. Um, we now like buy, buy, buy so much stuff. Uh, the last I heard, we, we've, we've actually surpassed $1 trillion of spending during Christmas. <laughs> we spent so much money um, celebrating the homeless baby born in the manger, in the stench of the manger. Uh, we've forgotten the story, right? And so there's a great project, if you haven't bumped into it, called uh, Advent Conspiracy um, that my friend started. And Advent Conspiracy, you can find it online and everything, but it's about reclaiming Christmas as a time for compassion, not for consumption. Mm. Come on, rethinking how we buy stuff. My friend Tony Gimpo always says, you know, our biggest wish at Christmas is that someone will have invented something new so that we can buy this new gadget for the people in our lives who already have everything. <laughs> and Tony always say, what, what should you buy for someone who already has everything? And he says, uh, nothing, right? But uh, we don't have the courage to do it. Uh, so there are a lot of people rethinking Christmas. Um, one of my pastor friends, he said his, his kid was reflecting on the Christmas story, right? And his kid just suddenly said, I don't think that we should get more than three gifts this Christmas. And, and my pastor buddy said to his kid, 
three gifts. Why? Tell me more. Why? 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 And the kid said, well, because Jesus only got three gifts. Why should we get more gifts, more presents than Jesus? And by the way, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, what kid wants myrrh, right? But but anyway, you know, these weren't even the greatest gifts for a kid, but that's what Jesus got. And this kid was going, maybe we shouldn't get more more gifts than Jesus. So they gave away all their Christmas presents except for three that, that season. Maybe we, we think about how we can um, spend more money, you know, giving to those who are struggling or doing something for those kids in Gaza than just buying gifts for kids and families and people who already have everything. So, yeah, there you go. A little Christmas story. But, you know, this whole the whole point of this story is that there is a God that became proximate w- with us. Um, that's what we remember at Christmas. You know, it, even the word Emmanuel means God with us. And, and you think about it, Jesus, from the moment he was born until, you know, he died on the cross he is experiencing some of the worst pain and violence. And um, when he was born, Herod began to kill children, massacring kids, trying to kill Jesus. Of course, he's executed on the cross with someone being killed on his left and on his right. So this is the most profound act of solidarity of God with us. The pro- You know, this God becoming proximate to the suffering of the world is an invitation too for us to be proximate to to be near to those who are hurting. And I think of my my friends in um, Bethlehem right now. I've got on my desk a tear gas canister that's been turned into uh, a Christmas ornament. And my my friends have created jobs for Palestinian families by taking tear gas canisters fired on them by the Israeli military, the Israeli defense forces, and they turn these tear gas uh, ornaments in Bethlehem into Christmas ornaments. So the thought that like Bethlehem, the Bethlehem where Jesus was born is in the West Bank. And it is one of those areas where there's so much injustice, so much pain, that wall that separates um, the Palestinians from the Israelis, uh, you know, this, this unholy, such unholy policies in this land we call the Holy Land. So that idea, you know, Jesus was born in the West Bank as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee coming from a town called Nazareth where people said nothing good could come. That's what we remember this Christmas and every day that God became proximate. So, you know, just as Jesus left all the comfort of heaven, we are to have, you know, the gravity of the gospel pulls us towards the suffering of the world. We're to lean in to the suffering. That's what we remember this this Christmas. My friends in, in Palestine also told me that they're rethinking the entire way that they do services this Christmas because of the thousands and thousands and thousands of lives lost since October 7th. Um, they are commemorating Christmas, but they're not calling it a celebration. They're calling it a commemoration because they are grieving. They're weeping this Christmas. Um, obviously, we know that the tomb was empty, that Jesus overcome overcomes death, that death has lost its sting. But we also remember that right now, Jesus must be weeping over Jerusalem and weeping over Gaza 
as scripture said, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because it didn't know the things that would bring peace. And as we look at the U.S. and the complicity, we are very complicit with this violence and this war. We're funding it. The bombs that are being dropped in Gaza are actually made just a few hours from where I live here in Pennsylvania. Many of them, uh, the U.S. funding this war, defending this violence. And what Hamas did, no one's going to argue um, defending what Hamas did on October 7th. Um, and yet we also see that to be to speak out against Hamas does not mean that um, we should collectively punish the Palestinian people, that um, the we, we should um, have the children of Gaza atone for the sins of Hamas. Collective punishment is wrong. And so this is why we've got to say to be uh, to speak out against the state of Israel is not to be anti-Semitic. It's just to say that it's wrong to bomb a hospital. It's wrong to bomb a school. Um, it's wrong to cut off electricity and water to uh, an entire group of people and, and, and to cut off electricity and not allow medicine. And um, I mean, these doctors are operating in Gaza without anesthesia. Mothers are getting C-sections without anesthesia. They're operating on people with um, flashlights and phones that they're they're looking at. So that means that it's it's so heartbreaking, and God is grieving with everyone who grieves. So this call to to for our love to be as big as God's love, for our compassion not to discriminate, that we should grieve every life lost in our world. That's a uh, what I think about this Christmas, we we you know in in the in the last section of this book, um, um, I, I talk about the urgency to to be near to those who are hurting, um, and and also not just to have opinions about people we don't know. And there's lots of folks that have opinions about Israel and Palestine, and folks that have opinions about gun violence or the death penalty. But the question is, do we know the people who have been impacted? Um, it's easy to have opinions about people that we don't know. <laughs> right? And yet when we know people, it changes everything. When we know immigrant families, it, it's not just immigration is not just a debate, but it's a political crisis to figure out how we can do a better job at welcome, welcoming people who are escaping unimaginable pain. I mean, we even think of the folks in Gaza right now. Are we willing to welcome them into our country, um, as 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 we we try to know, we know that as we welcome the stranger, we welcome Jesus. As we welcome the foreigner, Scripture says we might be entertaining angels unaware. So we got to be near to those who are hurting. I like how Mother Teresa said, uh, uh, it, it may be, be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. <laughs> right? That this is the call. Proximity calls us to be in relationship with folks, to be um, to visit folks who are uh, incarcerated and on death row, to foster kids and bring in, you know, uh, folks that are homeless into our home. So uh, the, the real call is to action. It's a call to action. We can't just have opinions. We need to have actions that back them up. Um, sometimes the hardest part about all this is knowing where to start. So in the last little part of this book, um, I, I give a few ideas of uh, things that we 
can do. And one of them is to start with a little humility, to realize that there's not a huge difference between us and other people who are suffering. We're all made in the image of God. We're all uh, imperfect. I, I like the the way that Henry Nouwen said, in the face of the oppressed, we can see our own faces. And in the hands of the oppressors, we can see our own hands, our own hands, that we we, we, we are praying that God would redeem all of us. And there's that beautiful story that Jesus tells about the uh, the story about the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? And the the Pharisee, you know, this religious dude, this self righteous guy, he he points, he looks out, and he says, "Thank you, God, that I'm not like these sinners or like this tax collector." Pointing at the tax collector, right? He says, "But I do all the stuff right, you know. I tithe, I go to church, blah blah blah." And then it says the tax collector couldn't even lift his head to heaven. He beat his chest and he said, "God." Have mercy on me, a sinner. And in all of this, I think there's a real, it's Jesus reminding us that self-righteousness is toxic. It's toxic. Moral superiority, thinking that we are better than other people, is poisonous. Jesus calls it the yeast of the Pharisees. And it's very interesting that Jesus' harshest words like brood of vipers, are not for people on the fringes of the faith, but for the religious elite <laughs> who had this moral superiority, who were, you know, Jesus says to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Ooh. So Jesus didn't just come to make bad people good. Jesus came to bring dead people to life. Jesus did, you know, came to set us free of our uh, moral superiority. And it, it, so a lot of this begins with humility. And please, you know, I grew up with a version of conservative self-righteousness that was like, a, you know, purity culture. Um, that we wouldn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go out with girls that do, you know, that we wouldn't listen to secular music, we wouldn't drink alcohol, we wouldn't do, you know, any of these immoral things. And then, you know, you get, I, I got, you know, um, reoriented and kind of uh, born again into the justice movement. And I noticed that there's a progressive form of self-righteousness that's still pointing fingers and saying, thank you that we're not like those people. <laughs> we're not like the Republicans, you know, we're not like the evangelicals. We're, we're better than them. We, we, we would never drive an SUV or drink at uh, Starbucks. Like we go to the fair trade local coffee shop, you know, like there's, but if we're not careful, there's this other justice, progressive self-righteousness that's still toxic. And it's still about making ourselves feel good by pointing out how bad everyone else is moral superiority that yeast of the pharisees has you know kind of a different look i mean this is very alarming that um uh right now in the united states um we have some polls that have come out that um where they ask um republicans and democrats i mean we're so divided as a nation and one of the things that they asked is um how do you feel about the folks on, you know, in the other political persuasion? And um, 
this is, you know, 86% of Republicans said that Democrats are brainwashed and almost the exact same number. 84% of Democrats um, or 88% of Democrats said that Republicans are brainwashed. So it's almost the same amount. Almost 90% of both said the other is brainwashed. Almost, uh, it was like 85% of both said the others, the other party is hateful. But this was also alarming. They went out to say, um, what percentage of you think that the opposing political party are evil. And it was like 40%, almost half of both Democrats and Republicans thought that the other people in the other party are evil in a stunning amount. About 20, 15 to 20% of both parties said that the world would be better off if large numbers of the opposing party just died. A stunning amount of people would wish other people with different political views than them were just dead. That's a dangerous society we live in. And so I think right now, you know, we need no less moral conviction. We need to speak truth to power. We need to speak out and love, but we also need humility. We need to believe that people can change. Uh, I, I see all the time people who are not the same person they were 10 or 20 years ago. Imagine like if you met yourself 10 years ago. <laughs> I would I would have had a heated debate with myself. So we need, you know, I, we need that uh, to keep that self-righteousness in check. So there's a bunch of other stuff as we wrap this book series up that I'll I'll talk about. But um, if you haven't checked out uh, uh, Rethinking Life, you can get it um, off. If you just go to my website, shaneclaiborne.com. Um, it links you up to places where you can get the book and support the, the ministry that we're doing in the neighborhood. Um, and if you're not already a part of Red Letter Christians, join this movement. We like to say we're living as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. That's where, what we're aspiring to every day, to, to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and also that we're trying to follow after that Jesus who left all the comfort of heaven to join the struggle here on earth. We remember that this Advent, this Christmas, but we remember that every day. There is a God who is with us, who is with all of those who are suffering and weeping and struggling to make it right now. God's with us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.